So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 137, uh, if you will. Um, Psalm 137. 136 is one that we've often heard. 137 is um, not as uh, not as well known, and yet there are valuable things in here that God wants to teach us. So let me read the psalm, and then we will talk about it. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of, its ma- of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations, O daughter of, Zion, of, of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we, we come to your word, and, and this word in particular, that, that pierces us, that, that challenges us, that shakes us up, Lord, we pray that we would hear from you, that you would pierce us with the power of your word, that we may be people who, having seen who you really are, Leave not unchanged, but with a sense of your holy majesty and your majestic holiness and the awe and wonder of who you are. And Lord, may you purify the hope that we have in you. Lord, we come to you hoping in you. We come to you believing in you, putting all our trust and confidence in you. We pray that you would purify that hope and purify that trust and purify that confidence that it would reflect who you are in all the splendor of your glory, all of your holiness and your power. And that then to believe in Jesus would mean something even more, even more powerful. He would be even more powerful to us and the salvation that we have in him we would appreciate to a far greater degree. We pray this, that you would do this through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that last part of that psalm is, is quite challenging, isn't it? A blessing to the one who dashes the little ones on the rocks. I just tremble to read that and to think of that. It doesn't sit well with us. Now, I promise you I'll deal with that section in its place. So if you just trust there, let me back up and look at the psalm as a whole. And I think actually when we look at the whole thing, not just the last part, we see that the whole thing is emotionally tough. It's challenging. For me, reading this psalm, meditating on it, 
is a little bit like watching one of those difficult movies, a Schindler's List or 12 Years as a Slave, a a movie that is honest with a brutal part of human experience that we don't like to think about. And I don't know what your experience is in, in watching something like that or just meditating that or even watching the news. Sometimes you come away feeling as if your emotions just went through the meat grinder. That's what this psalm does to me. It's, it's raw. It's real. And praise God that it's in here because sometimes that's exactly what we need. My wife was teasing me when I told her what I was going to preach on today. I had preached on this psalm four years ago at my church when I was a pastor of Greenbelt Baptist Church. And my wife said, oh, that was one of, one of your sermons from uh, your dark season. And I said, I didn't have a dark season. And she said... Uh, Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You you preached on Judges and this psalm, and every sermon, I mean, every uh, song that we sang was in the minor key. And I thought back, and I remembered, oh, yes, there was that season when I had just kind of discovered that nearly all of, well, a high percentage of my congregation had experienced some sort of significant trauma committed against them, and another percentage of the congregation was trying to commit trauma against me told you about that. Praise God, he, he worked. And, and yes, this psalm ministered to me and the congregation through that time. Psalms are God's gift to us because they resonate with the full range of human emotions. They're like good friends who rejoice with us when we rejoice and weep with us when we weep. That phrase there, how can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That kind of is somewhat the theme of this psalm here. It reminds me of an article that uh, theologian Carl, historian Carl Truman wrote titled, What Can a Miserable Christian Sing? He wrote it during a difficult time in his life when he was... He was experiencing sorrows and frustrated because the songs he was singing in church didn't seem to resonate with him. He didn't come to church filled with joy. Well, Psalm 37 is a song that a miserable Christian can sing. It's ironic because this song is about how can we sing the Lord's songs? And yet it's a song of the Lord, right? It is a song about how they have to hang up their musical instruments and says, may my tongue be stuck to the roof of my mouth. May I lose my skill. It's a song written about how there are times when you can't sing. Well, friends, maybe you're here and this is a difficult season for you. I think the lesson from this psalm is that there is a godly way to grieve. This psalm teaches us that when we walk through one of those dark periods, dark seasons, we are not walking away from God, but rather can engage with Him through that. You see, the problem that I think this psalm brings up and what Truman wrestles with in his article is that if all the experiences that we see in life about how to commune with God are during times of rejoicing, and shouts of joy, then when we walk through a season of suffering, a season of darkness, 
we tend to think that God, therefore, is distant. And what I think this psalm teaches us is that no, we can engage with God and do engage with God, even in that valley of the shadow of darkness. This is how God is with us then. I want to make a case that the circumstances that this psalmist is talking about are, objectively speaking, worse than anything we would ever experience. Not that we can't feel the same degree of sorrow, but the objective circumstance, the objective reality is worse. And if this psalmist engaged with God then, how much more can we? Now, this psalm... You could just bring it up. Thanks. Thanks for serving that's okay. No worries. Um, drank a lot of coffee this morning. Realized I'm dehydrated. Um, the psalm here has three sections to it. And each one gives us something that we need in order to engage with God in, in our sorrows. The first section tells us to remember. It tells us to remember. The second section... And the first section, I think, goes from verses 1 through 4. The second section tells us that we grieve because of a deeper joy. We'll see a very complicated emotional response here, and that is in verses 5 and 6. And then the third section talks about how we take comfort in God's judgment, and that is in verses 7 through 9. So first, we remember... Look there at verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Note there that they remembered so they wept. The remembering is the occasion, the cause of their grief. Why does remembering hurt so much? Well, because it, it makes them aware, it makes the psalmist aware of what he's lost. That Mount Zion here is, is the mountain in Israel, in Jerusalem, that was a symbol of the place of God's presence. God always met with people on mountains. Mountains are a sacrament to God's presence. The Garden of Eden was on a mountain. Mount uh, Sinai was obviously a mountain, and so was Mount Zion. Places where God meets with His people. But now, they are far away from Zion. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They're in Babylon, remembering Zion. And there, in that place in Babylon, the Hebrew stresses, in that place, there in Babylon, they wept. Zion used to be so much a part of their lives. They would go up to worship God there. They had access to God in Jerusalem where Mount Zion was. But now they've been sent away. You see, the nation had for years ignored God. They disobeyed Him. And God warned them time and time again. But they did not listen. So they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were a ruthless people. The siege of Jerusalem was terrible. Mothers were eating their children. Jerusalem had been destroyed, laid bare, according to verse 7. Stripped down, it says. The goal of the Babylonians was to dehumanize and destroy the people. And they killed so many of them. And the few that survived, the remnant, had to make the long journey on foot from Jerusalem to Babylon where they would 
live among the very people who so brutally killed their brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and children. But that's not the worst part. The worst part of the exile was the loss of God's presence. There in Babylon, they remembered not their homes, not their families, not their jobs, not at least primarily those things. They remembered Zion. They remembered the place where they would meet with God. And that was what caused their grief. And so they wept there by the watchers of Babylon. Now, the waters of Babylon is obviously a reference there to the Tigris and Euphrates River that runs throughout Babylon, modern-day Iraq and Turkey. And if you were to look at Babylon on a map, uh, like a Google Earth, you look at that area on a Google Earth map or something, you would see that it's all very brown except for these two green strips right along the rivers. There it is green and lush. And the psalmist emphasizes there in that place, by the waters of Babylon, he's weeping. The point is that he's not weeping in the desert. It's not, as David says in Psalm 63, a dry and weary land where there is no water. They had plenty of that in the Middle East. But it's, it's in this lush green place. It's the one place where you can get shade from the scorching sun. You can have water. It's right there. I happened to actually live along the Tigris River for uh, several years. And, you know, there's something about the way the Bible uses water as a metaphor for life that I I think you can't understand without having actually lived there, right? It, It really is dry and barren all around. And when you get to a river, it really is life. Just like Jesus really is life. And there is no life apart from Him. I actually remember quite vividly, taking my wife on a date down to the waters of Babylon. There, there was this uh, um, restaurant that was h- high up on the banks of the Tigris River, and, and it, we ate outside and enjoyed it so much. Not, the food was okay, but it was just so green all around. And I remember uh, down below us, uh, all, along the, the bank of the river, they would build like these these decks out onto the water and the young people would go down there with their musical instruments and they would just play and, and enjoy the shade and enjoy the water and the cool, coolness there. Now, except for the food that we were eating, I don't think much change has changed there over the last 2,000 years. Who knows? Maybe the psalmist was in that very spot. But, but notice here in this psalm, he can't sing. In spite of the greenery, in spite of the idyllic location, in spite of the beauty, he can't sing there. In an act of cruelty, the tormentors are demanding that the Israelites sing, right? Sing us the songs of Zion, they say. Be merry. Rejoice. Oh, that's horrible abuse. It reminds me of the Nazis demanding that the Jewish people in the ghettos play in music and dance for them. The audacity that people have to think They can take the exercise control over these people and then command them to be happy even as they afflict such cruelties upon them. That's raw evil. And that's what the Babylonians were. But notice there, the the psalmist says, we can't do that. We can't sing. In spite of the beautiful surroundings, in spite of the river, in spite of the green 
in the shade. We can't sing because we remember Zion and we know what has been lost. It's interesting to think about what defines Israelite identity at this point. What makes Israel Israel at this point? Because they're not in Israel. They're not in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon, captured. Those things that had marked Israel off from the other people are now gone. The temple is gone. The priesthood, they're not there anymore. The sacrifices, they've stopped. The king, uh, he's been killed. The way they've ordered themselves as a nation, those things are gone. What marks the people off now from the other people around them, and there were many other exiles living in Babylon as well, because Babylon had done this to many nations. What marks the Israelites off now is a deeper level of grief because they know what's been lost. And so what we see in this psalm is this disciplined remembering. (laughs) This disciplined remembering, this commitment to remember, which causes grief, which preserves their identity. There's a sense where they can't stop remembering or they'll have lost what it means to be God's people. To be an Israelite in Babylon is to have lost something great. They go on singing, all right. There's this psalm that is written. It's meant to be sung. They keep singing. But it's a psalm of lament. Well, how can this apply to us? We have to be very careful about how we make application because I think the theological circumstances are very different from what we face. They have lost God's presence in a way that we never can. They are living under the judgment of God. Well, I say we as Christians. That's what I mean there. They are living under the judgment of God as a consequence for their sin. They can't make things right by simply confessing their sins to God. They're under national judgment. And they will remain that way for 70 years. There's no real direct one-to-one correspondence between what they have suffered and the kind of sorrow we could which I think is a reason why theirs is, their objective circumstance is far worse. But I think this psalm teaches us that there is such a time and place for serious grief and mourning in the Christian life. And we see this in the New Testament. What does James mean when he tells us, commands us, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Not appropriate to walk along our whole Christian life with a glib sense of joy. There are times when it is appropriate to be very, very sad. Because the losses and crosses are real. Sin has consequences in our own lives and in the lives of others. There is a real tragedy in those consequences. As a pastor, I've walked closely with many people who have found themselves in situations they never thought they would be in. It's not what they've planned. Ministries ended because of immorality. Sometimes theirs and sometimes other people's. Marriages ending in sinful divorce. I'm not saying that sadness is the only emotion that we should experience. We'll talk a little bit more how it's, Christian emotions are, are very mixed here. It's very complicated. 
But in keeping with James's exhortation, sometimes what differentiates Christians from non-Christians is that we actually weep louder and grieve deeper because we are more acutely aware of what has been lost. Non-Christians experience the painful consequence of sin as well, don't they? But Christians know how much the sin has not only grieved others, but has also grieved their Father in heaven. Christians know that abuse is not only violence against the one abused, but also against the image of God. Christians know that the Christians know the bonds that God has worked within the body to demonstrate the unity of the Trinity here on earth, right? As Jesus prayed in John 17. And so we lament even more when there's conflict within. I recommend that article by Carl Truman, What Can a Miserable Christian Sing? In which he criticizes the Western brand of Christianity with its consumerism and promise of prosperity for undervaluing the biblical idea of lamentation. As a check to that, I had the privilege recently of spending some time with believers from Africa. And one of them in particular we got to talk with talked about lamenting and the category of lamentation in in a way that made me realize, yeah, I haven't thought deeply about that as I ought to have. I think God still wants us to lament What would it look like for lamentation to be more intentionally cultivated over the right things? Now, knowing something of, going out on a limb here a little bit, but knowing something of the tradition that you are part of and how you do place an emphasis on the emotions, I suspect that you know something about this. And you have something that the tradition I've been part of can actually learn from. You probably know something in this regard. Still, what would it look like to practice this biblical idea of lament. I think we can learn something from this passage as to how we ought to do it. We ought to see that it's real, that it's a part of the Christian life. Now, we get a little bit of a different perspective on this lamentation from the second stanza here. The psalmist in the second stanza is obviously still sad, but as you look at this second stanza, you'll notice the only emotion that he mentions here is joy. He's obviously sad, but the only emotion he explicitly mentions here is joy. Verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you and do not see Jerusalem above my highest joy. Again, we see the importance of remembering that we talked about in in stanza 1. But here, we see that this remembering is tied not to the weeping as it was before, it's tied to joy. He's still obviously sad, but joy has now come into the picture. And I think this relates to that question he asks earlier. How can we sing the, song, the Lord's song in a foreign land? His concern here is not to go on living in Babylon as if he hadn't lost something of great value. So what does he do here in, this, in this, uh, these verses? He pronounces a curse upon himself if he doesn't have Jerusalem as his highest joy. Now, it's poetry here. I don't think he literally imagines that the possibility is that his tongue will stick to the roof of his mouth. He's using 
hyperbole and strong language here to say, this is how much I want to take joy in Jerusalem. I want to take joy in Jerusalem and I want to guard that joy in Jerusalem even though I'm far away, even though it's been lost in some sense. I want to guard that by saying, may I lose the ability to praise anything if I don't praise Jerusalem above everything else. And by the way there, he doesn't mean Jerusalem is simply the city. He means it as it is a place of God's presence. He's talking about God meeting with His people. Communion with God is what he means as Jerusalem. And this emotional experience is rather complicated then, wouldn't you say? You know, if on the one hand, think of it like this. If you were going to ask the psalmist, on the one hand, psalmist, what is the cause of your greatest anguish? He would say, oh, that's easy. It's one I think of Jerusalem. And then if you were to say, oh, what is the cause of your greatest source of joy? He would say, oh, that's easy too. It's Jerusalem. See that there? What's going on here in this section is that the psalmist is fighting to preserve the goodness of the reality that has been lost. His joy in Jerusalem is the grounds of his sorrow for losing it. He is fighting to preserve the goodness of the reality that has been lost and grieving over it at the same time. This psalmist is an Israelite. His greatest joy is not other people's joy. His greatest joy is not the beauty of God's creation or the joy in music or the joy in this clean running water. His greatest joy is in God meeting with His people. And He wants to preserve that joy is real. And He wants to grieve that they've lost it. By the way, let me just make an aside comment here. Isn't it interesting how the Bible shows the reality of the complications of human emotions, right? And if you want to see what a true picture of the human heart is, you don't have to go outside the Bible. It's right there. It talks about the the human heart and all its complexity and beauty and tragedy as well. What we see here is this back and forth emotional response between the joy that there is such a thing as Jerusalem and God meeting with His people and the horror of it being lost. But is it really lost? Notice he speaks of the joy in Jerusalem as a present ongoing reality, even as, if you look down there at verse 8, the city itself has been destroyed. The city has been laid bare. It is no more. The people have been taken out of it. The temple is destroyed. And yet he rejoices in the city. I think his joy there is not only a joy of looking back, but his joy is also looking ahead. Because he knows the promises of God. He knows that God has said, you're going to disobey and you will be scattered from the land and yet I will still be your God even there and I will bring you back. What Jerusalem points to is something that could never be destroyed. The meeting of God with His people. It can never be destroyed because it's rooted in the eternal promise of God. The psalmist knows that just as God brought the people out of Israel, brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So he will do it again. But this time the psalmist knows that what keeps the people in slavery is not the power of a ruthless dictator, but their own sin. That's why they're in Babylon. 
And yet they know that even this too is not too difficult for God. He will once again free them from their bondage. And so what the psalmist does here is he guards against losing his identity and becoming just like the surrounding people by grieving and rejoicing. And he fights to preserve both of these realities. And so must we. So must we. Friends, what joys in your life compete with your joy in God? Enjoy in your joy in meeting with God. Where are you in danger of losing your Christian identity? Because you're rejoicing in the same things that the unbelievers are rejoicing in. The problem is not that we rejoice in other things, certainly. The problem is that we don't order our joy rightly. Right? We see that here, right? He's not saying that he's cursed if he has joy in anything other than Jerusalem. He's cursed if he has puts Jerusalem as anything other than above his highest joy. The, the, the thing here he wants is not only joy in Jerusalem, but the right ordering of joy with respect to Jerusalem. Augustine calls this, well, he calls the problem when we don't have that. He calls it disordered affections. The problem isn't that we love the wrong thing. The problem is we love it too much. We've put it above God. Friends, I wonder if you would ever consider praying such a prayer as the psalmist does to bring curses upon yourself if you do not actually put God above your greatest joy. Would perhaps you find that your joy is in your possessions and it is greater than your joy in God? Would you consider praying, Lord, may I lose the ability to to enjoy anything if I do not put God above all I own? Or maybe your joy is in your family. And that can be set above your joy in God. Would you pray, may my family be a source of pain and may I quarrel with them if I do not put God above my joy in them? You see how your sin has consequences for other people's lives as well, right? That would not be fun for your family if if that prayer was realized. And yet that is what happens when we put our joy in things other than God. And when we put our trust in an idol, we destroy that idol as well. Does your affections for your friends get in the way of God? Would you say, Lord, may I be left all alone if I do not love You more than these? Does your joy in your job rival your joy in God? Would you pray, Lord, may I forget my skills at being able to earn a living if I do not love You more than these? We could go on and on. Your joy in money, in sex, and in the pleasures of life, whatever it is. Do you want to have more joy in God? And are you willing to pray a prayer such as this? That you say, God, if that doesn't happen, may I lose the joy in whatever it is I like more than you. And if you don't want to pray that prayer, is that a sign that your affections have already been misplaced? You know, one thing that helps us order our affections rightly that we can also learn from this psalm is to have an exile outlook on life. In essence, that's what this psalmist is trying to do. He's trying to have an outlook on life as an exile. He's trying to remember that he's an exile and not think of himself as belonging to the place where he lives. He's trying to remind himself that although he lives in Babylon, that's not his home. 
He doesn't belong there. He has another home. And this is a source of both sorrow and joy. I think of, you know, when I apply this to ourselves, I think of Peter's letter to the churches, which began to the elect exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Glacia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. And we could add Frederick and Baltimore and Washington and wherever you are. Do you recognize that this is not your homeland? This is not where you really belong? One letter by an early Christian writer, uh, I think, defined this so well. This is an early Christian writer written, in attempt, uh, written to the unbelievers in an attempt to describe what real Christians are all about. And he says of these Christians, he says of them, Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. Did you get that? Every foreign land is to them a land of their native birth, and every land of their birth is to them a land of strangers. In other words, a Christian can be a citizen in every country, but is truly at home in none. We can live anywhere. There's no place where you can say, well, I can't live out my Christian life here. No, no place that you live in the world will compromise your identity as a Christian because of that place. But yet, on the other hand, there's no place that you can live where you're truly home. You're always in exile. Waiting for that day when the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. and will be God's dwelling place with His people and every tear will be wiped away. We're exiles. Waiting to return to our true home. Waiting with a sense of joy and lamentation at the same time. Well, maybe your life has worked out remarkably well. Maybe your kids have grown up and are following Christ and they live close by and you don't have financial worries and your health is good and this still isn't your home. You should still have a longing that cannot be satisfied here. No matter how much, as David says, the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places, something is still not the way it is supposed to be. And we are longing to make it for God to make it right. And that leads us to our last and final and hardest section, where we see that part of making that right involves judgment. Look there, starting at verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, and the Edomites is another way of talking about the Babylonians, the day of Jerusalem, talking about the day when it was destroyed, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And by the way, what's going on there, that lay it bare, is, is when, when a, a city is destroyed, such as this, in a time of war, the Bible, the imagery that the Bible uses for that is it is stripped. The city is personified here as a woman, and it's the idea that, that it's being laid bare, being vulnerable, being ashamed, being humiliated. That's the, that's the rather graphic and disturbing word picture here. And so it has in mind an evil that is, that is very great. A horrible, horrible uh, picture of abuse and shame and evil. And then, and then the psalmist switches and speaks to Babylon. 
in light of what they have done, in light of the cruel evil they have inflicted, and says, daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. This is that hard section (laughs) I promised to come back to. Let me say a few things about what this is not. First, it is not a desire for personal revenge. It's not a personal vendetta. It's not a personal gripe. The psalmist has set his story in the context of redemptive history. And what is at issue for him is not what these people have done against him, but what these people have done against God's people. He's not made this personal. It's about what these people have done against God. It's about him seeing himself within God's story and the part that these people have played in God's story, having attacked God's people. So it's not a personal desire for vengeance. It's also not a plan to be a, some sort of terrorist against their Babylonian children. He's not planning to do anything. It's not, I think, and here I have to be very careful because I don't want to downplay this, it's not necessarily to be taken literally. Again, I want to be careful here because the anger is real and the emotions are real. But this is poetry and he's not exactly imagining that somebody's going to actually do this to the Babylonian children. It's a poetic way of expressing justice. Because obviously the Babylonians did that to their children. That's what's implied here. The only children that were dashed upon the rocks were the Israelite children. And that is a huge tragedy. That's what they're feeling here. What's going on here, I believe, is a desire, a godly desire for ultimate justice. Part of God ordering things rightly is that God will inflict proportional retribution for those who have acted cruelly and evil in this world. Justice operates upon the assumptions that certain actions are inherently blameworthy. They're just wrong. And the people who've done them need to be blamed or something is just out of whack in the universe. And that's because of God's ultimate holiness. That that God's holiness is the standard for justice. And when something has been done wrong, it's been done wrong against God. It's an assault to His honor and His glory. And for God to be God requires that He make it right by a retribution against those who have inflicted it. If God doesn't bring about justice, He's not God. If our, future, if our hope for future glory doesn't involve God bringing about punishment on His enemies who have wronged Him, then it isn't the kind of future glory that the Bible describes. We don't want this judgment out of a sense of personal vindictiveness. That's not how we should cry out for God's judgment. Rather, we should cry out for God's judgment with the idea that God really does love justice and righteousness because He is holy. And that requires Him to respond. C.S. Lewis says that this psalm is here to teach us that there really is such a thing as wickedness and God hates it. Now, that idea is not so popular in the world today in in many places. Well, in many places in the West. Uh, A theologian named Wolf um, 
Marisov Volf points out, and by the way, he, he's from the Balkans, so he's seen genocide firsthand. You know, he, he knows what happened there, the mass graves and all. He says this, let me, let me read it. He says, and, and he's talking about the idea that some have that, that in order for us not to be violent ourselves, we need to believe that God is never violent. And he says that's wrong, that thesis is wrong. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. For the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves, which is to say we don't take up you know, personal vendettas and be vindictive, the only way to prevent that uh, by ourselves is to insist that God, sorry, that violence is legitimate when it comes from God. And that he will repay evil. Volf says, I know my thesis will be unpopular with many in the suburban West, but in a sun-scorched, blood-soaked land, the Western liberal idea of a nonviolent God will invariably die. And I think he's right. The way we don't take up violence ourselves in inappropriate ways is by entrusting it to God and seeing His ultimate justice as a good thing. Let me just read you a few verses that speak with this. Matthew 25.41 Then He will say to all those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, starting at verse 6, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. That's exactly what Psalm 137 is, right? God repaying with affliction those who afflicted you. This is, this is just. And then, God, and then it says, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. In Revelation 18, we read of the final judgment on Babylon. This is where God finally repays with affliction those who have afflicted God's people. And it says in Revelation 19, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. And Revelation 19 goes on to talk about Jesus. It says His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then in Revelation 20, we read about Jesus sitting on the great white throne. And it says that the earth and the sky have fled away from his presence, and the dead, small and great, were raised, and the dead were judged according to what they had done. And it says, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. These verses are sobering, aren't they? They help, though, shape and and transform and purify the hope that we have in God. Because God is a God of justice. And it is good. The salvation that we look for is one in which it is good for God to to establish His absolute final justice. Let me add just a, a personal perspective on this that honestly in light of all the verses I read and the the weight of this this, uh, feels a bit trivial. 
but, but maybe it just gives some sense of application in terms of what this would look for. Uh, I was, um, found myself uh, in a place fighting for a sense of justice, fighting to expose wrongdoing, um, and seeing a person bring harm to others and use their position of authority to do that. And, and that was a difficult time. And a friend of mine, uh, actually in, in love, and tried to say, uh, you know, in, for me to guard my heart, he said, beware of the imprecatory psalms, which this one is a psalm of lament, and it's also an imprecatory psalm. It's, it's praying a, a judgment against someone. He said, beware of those. And I think we do need to beware of those, because it is all too easy for our own personal anger to rise up against that. And yet I think, approached rightly, we see how these... Psalms can be useful in the Christian life. Because the cry for God to, to judge, the cry for God's justice to come, is a godly cry. It is the godly who cry, how long, O Lord? And they cry that because they are godly. And so I think, even in and through that, I saw how, how one could pray these imprecatory prayers with a sense of longing for God's justice and wanting it to come. Because we see the, the evil that happens, the wrong that happens when the evildoers do evil and get away with it. But that's, that's not where we have to end. This psalm is interesting because it just ends <laughs> at that place of, like, of, of, of sorrow, of shocking reality. And yet that's not where the Bible ends. It ends in a different place because the one who is crushed is ultimately our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the judgment that this psalmist cries out for, the judgment for just retribution upon those who have done wrong, is ultimately a judgment that Christ takes in our place. He was bruised for our iniquity. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that we deserved fell upon Him. And only because of that does the glory that we have in the future, the, the glo- only because of that does the ultimate justice involve one in which we are actually welcomed into God's presence instead of being put away for all of eternity. You know, as I was involved in that experience I described just a bit ago, uh, as I was, uh, was searching out and looking how to expose wrongdoing, one of the things that became clear for me was that if the Lord were to count all iniquities, who would stand? I think the only way to cry out against somebody else's injustice is to be more aware and grieved of your own. And you can do both at the same time. And yet we see that our own injustice, great as it is before the eyes of God, is met for those who have trusted in Jesus entirely in Christ and satisfied. And therefore, though we lament now, we will only rejoice in the age to come. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we come to You with hearts that are perhaps made heavier by this psalm, seeing the demand of Your perfect justice. But, O oh Lord, may we have confidence in Christ alone. Because where we would not be able to stand in Your judgment, not to be able to come through it at all clean, but only condemned. Christ did. And He took that judgment for us 
that we may enjoy you for all of eternity in glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.